Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for joining us. Really great to have you, especially uh, if this is your first Sunday. Thanks for joining us. Um, man, I'm just so, I am so grateful for you guys as a, as a church. As I was singing this morning, I was just thinking, man, I'm so thankful for our worship team. And then I looked at the decor and then I looked up at the black ceiling and I remembered the design team picking out the tile for the ceiling and the colors of the chairs and just thinking about all of you and your faithfulness and your serving. And I just, uh, I feel like I'm the most blessed man on the face of the earth. I get to do this. I get to come up and speak to you. And uh, thanks for all your constant uh, prayers for us as pastors and your encouragement. I uh, really appreciate you guys. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians, but before we actually look at 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to pray together because the, uh, a, a, a group of churches that we are friends with and all part of the body of Christ called Harvest, uh, they have a church here in Indiana, a branch campus, and their main campus is in Catanning. They're having a baptism and a worship service this morning in Catanning, down by the river, and I'm holding back, singing some song by the same title, but down by the river, they're having a service together in which they're worshiping together, they're baptizing people, they expect 800 to 1,000 people, it's an outreach, they'll be reaching out to the community, um, so let's pray for that. Lord, we pray for Harvest Church and their service down by the river in Catanning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would pour out your blessing, pour out your spirit. We pray that you would use this to draw many to you, Jesus, and save people, that people that are there for other reasons would hear the singing and would come and hear the gospel and be saved. Lord, we pray you would bless everyone being baptized. We just pray you would just pour out your, your favor, your spirit, your blessing on the whole thing. Lord, please grant them great weather. Just give, it a, just a, give them a wonderful day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Resurrection. You can stake your life on it. The Resurrection. You can stake your life on it. The Apostle Paul had come to the Corinthians with an incredible teaching that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had been crucified on a Roman cross to pay for sins, the sins of the world. That he'd been buried, then raised from the dead physically on the third day, and Jesus had appeared to many people after the resurrection, including Paul himself. 
And because Jesus had risen from the dead, all who believe in him will someday rise from the dead as well. Paul staked his life on the resurrection. Because of his belief in a life after this, and because of Paul's belief in a future physical resurrection, Paul worked hard for Jesus. Paul pursued holiness. Paul put sin to death in his life. Paul denied himself and was willing to suffer and to take risks for Jesus because he believed in the future resurrection and that someday he would be rewarded for every act of service he did to Jesus. And Paul encouraged the Corinthians to do the same. But false teachers had come in to Corinth and taught there was no resurrection. The church was being confused, and they taught that when you're dead, you're dead. Gone. After this life, there's nothing. And many today teach the same thing. For example, Ken Taylor, a professor of philosophy at Stanford. This is our education. Um, he says this. After death, what's, what's next? After death, that is. He says... Here's one answer. Nothingness. How can I be so sure there's no afterlife? After all, people have believed in the afterlife since, well, since there were people. Who am I to say they're wrong? Well, surely we can recognize wishful thinking when we see it. People believe in the afterlife because they don't like the idea of dying. It's a comforting fantasy. Nothing more. I can almost guarantee that if you are a student and you attend IUP, you will hear something like that from one prof or another. Wishful thinking, comforting fantasy, nothing more. That's what false teachers were teaching the Corinthians. So Paul combats this false teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. And a few weeks ago, Joe taught on the first few verses in this chapter. And these verses are so critical for this whole message. Let's just read these together because they're part of the background. And if you would like to hear Joe's message, you can go on our website to the sermons and you can hear that. And if you, if you weren't here, I'd recommend it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, this is 
the gospel or good news. And this is of first importance in life. This is the most important news you could ever hear. This is the most important thing to know in life. This is of first importance that Christ, the Messiah, God Himself who became a man, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That means as the Old Testament Scriptures had prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years earlier, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the Scriptures that had been written centuries later. Now see, this is, this is so incredible. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth, the Scriptures, it was written down in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and die as a substitute for sinners. You can read Isaiah 53. And that He would rise from the dead. The Scriptures foretold that. Jesus came and He said, I'm going to fulfill that. And then He did fulfill it. See, it's one thing if something happens... It's another thing if it was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, then it happens, and then afterwards to confirm that it happens, Jesus appears to numerous people in numerous settings, in numerous light, lighting. So some, someone can't say, well, he appeared at night to Paul, or he appeared at night to Peter. No, he appeared in all kinds of ways. And even at one time, he appeared to 500 people at the same time after he had risen from the dead. This is not mass wishful thinking. These are facts. He verified what had been prophesied about him hundreds of years earlier. This is the good news. He died to pay for our sins and rose from the dead, which proved God had accepted his sacrifice for sin. Seen by numerous eyewitnesses. So, having established that without a doubt Christ rose from the dead, Paul goes on to argue for a number of things based on the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees a number of incredible truths. And if we deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are inevitable consequences. So we stake our lives as believers on the resurrection. So Paul hits three big points in this passage we're going to look at. First of all, the resurrection validates our present faith. Next, the resurrection guarantees our future hope. And the resurrection gives us incentive to live for God. That's what Paul is going to tell us this morning. That's what God is going to speak to us through His Word. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we know Jesus rose from the dead. This is not wishful thinking. We thank You, Jesus, that there was so much evidence. So many people saw Him. And we thank You that we can stake our lives on the resurrection. Lord, build our faith this morning, we pray. Build our faith. And I pray if any, anyone is in this room who does not know you, Jesus, that you would give them faith in you this morning to believe in you as Lord of lords and King of kings and call upon you to be their Lord. 
We just ask in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So first of all, Paul is going to show us how the resurrection validates our faith. And if I believe in something, I really want to know that it's true. If I'm going to stake my life on it. I don't want to believe in something that I'm not sure of. And the resurrection of Jesus validates our faith. And so he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the, of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's like a logical argument. If Christ was raised, there has to be a resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul is he's presenting a logical argument, which the Greeks at that time would have related to. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he's saying there has to be a resurrection because Jesus Christ himself was raised. We know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because of all the eyewitnesses. Therefore, if Christ is raised, there is a resurrection. And Jesus himself promised that he himself was and is the resurrection. So he says, if Christ has not been raised, though, he says, logically, the logical conclusion is, if Jesus has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, I'm quitting my job today. In the last number of years, however many years I've been preaching, have been totally worthless. I should have just taken some other job. Should have stayed in the teaching art when I graduated from college because all I've done for the last number of years is worthless if Jesus hasn't been raised. See, I'm staking everything on the fact that I have total confidence that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. He says, if Jesus is not raised, your faith is in vain. You might as well believe in the tooth fairy. Rather than Jesus. If Jesus hasn't been raised, what more is, what else is there to believe in? So often when, when I've gone through a, a hard time in my life, I've said the same words that Peter has said. At times I've, I've felt like giving up. And I, I think every one of us at times feels like that. And I said, I've said to Jesus the same thing that, that Peter said. I've said, I've seen, said, when Jesus said to Peter he said, and the disciples, he said, how about you guys? Are you going to leave me too? A lot of people were bailing out. And Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
That's what I've said. Lord, where else am I going to go? You're the one that rose from the dead. You have the words of eternal life. I have nothing else to live for if I am not clinging to you, Jesus. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, your faith is in vain. And then he says, if, if, if that's true, then we preachers are deceivers. Because we told you that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if he didn't raise him from the dead, then we're all liars. Then I'm a liar. And I'm a wicked person because for years I've been encouraging you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he says, your faith is futile. Your faith won't do a thing for you if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And then he says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're still in our sins. Boy, I can, one of the greatest things in my life has been being freed from the guilt and condemnation of my sins. I've told people before so many times, there is nothing better than a clear conscience. And the blood of Jesus cleansed my conscience. And not only that, though, Jesus freed me from the dominion of sin and the enslaving power of sin, which I could not break out of. I tried and tried, and I was a slave to sin. So I know the reality of the resurrection in that Jesus truly freed me from the enslaving power of sin. And if you're a slave to sin, read Romans 6. Because it says we are no longer under the dominion of sin when we come to Jesus Christ. He says if Jesus, if there's no resurrection and Christ hasn't risen from the dead, he says then not only are you still in your sins, but believers who have died have perished. They're not in heaven. They're not with Jesus. We have no hope we'll ever see our loved ones again who believed in Jesus. Just before I came up here, it was just so great. Rodney All's house came up. His, his mom, who was a believer, went to be with the Lord this week. Rodney said, I am so full of joy because I know that my mom is in heaven with Jesus, worshiping before the throne of God. At the viewing, I was... I was thinking about my dad, too, who was a believer in Jesus. And I said to Rodney, my dad's probably up in heaven telling your mom long stories. Because <laughs> my dad would tell these long, long stories. Now he's probably telling them to the angels before the throne of God. The angels are saying, let's worship Jesus for a while. Then you can tell me how the story ends. But if, if there's no resurrection, what hope do we have of ever seeing our loved ones who believed in Jesus again? None. No, they're gone. Then we should grieve as those who have no hope. The Bible says that for believers we grieve. Yes, it's totally right and appropriate to grieve when our loved ones go to heaven, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And then Paul says, if there's no resurrection, we're to be pitied above all people. Why? Because we're believing a falsehood. 
We're denying ourselves all kinds of sinful pleasures. We're making sacrifices. We're giving our money to the kingdom of God. We're serving other people. We're laying down our lives for a pipe dream. If that's the case, we should be pitied. It's a pathetic group of people. They could be having all kinds of fun. Instead, they're believing a lie. But Christ's resurrection confirms that our preaching is the truth. Our faith, what we have believed, what you have believed in, is the truth. You can trust in Jesus, hope in Jesus. You know what, there's so many things that I don't understand in Scripture. There there are things that I, I don't understand, but I know this. I know that Jesus is alive. I know that I have eternal life. I know that someday Jesus will explain all this to me. I know that my faith is worthwhile holding on to. And because Jesus has risen, you, I know that, you know, and you can know that we are sincere as we preach the gospel. We can know that we have forgiveness of sin. We're really forgiven of our sins, really free. We have no longer any debt of sin to pay because Jesus paid it. That is so so liberating. And we know that we will see our loved ones who believed in Jesus again. And we know that it's worthwhile to follow Christ. We're not to be pitied. People who don't believe in Jesus are to be pitied. People who reject Jesus are to be pitied. They're the ones to be pitied. We are the ones who have have real joy and life and a future to look forward to. So the resurrection confirms our faith. Secondly, the resurrection guarantees our hope for the future. It it, it confirms our present faith for right now, and it, it guarantees our hope for the future. And so beginning in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, it means God the Father is not in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's what the resurrection of Jesus guarantees. It guarantees our future. It guarantees that, he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. That means we too will rise. We are part of the same harvest. It's like, 
It's like when a, when a farmer would harvest the first fruits of the crop. And that's, that's evidence to him that the whole crop is going to be raised. The whole crop is going to be harvested. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And that's a guarantee that everyone who believes in Jesus will be raised. Paul says, death came to Adam, or death came through Adam to all men, and eternal life comes through Christ to all who believe in him. So Paul is comparing Adam and Christ. And I'll try to just say this simply. Everyone, initially, the whole human race is biblically, quote, in Adam. In other words, Adam was a representative of the race, of the whole race. And in a sense, we were all in Adam. And God, in God's economy, the way God does things, is that whatever Adam did would represent the whole race. And so when Adam sinned, we all sinned, in a sense, in him. And if you say, well, that's not fair, that's not right, well, we've all sinned personally anyway. We all have sinned and deserve the wrath of God. But the reason we were subjected to temptation to sin, the reason we were all born in sin, is because Adam sinned, and then he passed that down from generation to generation to generation so that every human being was born in sin except for Jesus Christ. So we're all in Adam in a sense. And so we all died in Adam. But those who believe in Jesus, Jesus was the head of a new race. Jesus was the head of, of the, those who would be born again, the, the children of God. Jesus came to represent all who would believe in Him. And so what Jesus did on the cross, just as God counted what Adam did to all of us, what Jesus did on the cross, God counts to everyone who believes in Him. Who believes in Him. So, Jesus paid for sins. But God counts that to us. As if we paid for it. We didn't pay for our sins. Jesus paid for our sins. But God credits that to us when we believe in Jesus. And Jesus' life of perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to the Father... When we believe in Jesus Christ, God counts that life to us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. He, in the, 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 tech, the, the theological term is God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. We're not righteous in and of ourselves, but God has counted the righteousness of Christ to us who believe in Him. That's incredible. And that's what the resurrection guarantees. And so, because Jesus' death is ours, His resurrection is ours. Because He rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. And so it says in verse 23 that Christ rose first and believers will rise at His coming. When we die, our spirit goes to be with Christ. But when Jesus returns we will rise physically with new bodies. And Bob is going to preach on that next week. You'll want to be here for that. 
we will have new immortal bodies that will rise when Jesus returns. And it says Christ will destroy every rule, authority, and power. And so the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that evil will not triumph in the end. Isn't that good to know? Isn't it good to know that evil will not triumph in the end? I mean, it's such a fearful world we live in. ISIS and so many other fears. In the end, Jesus will triumph. He will destroy every rule, authority, and power. And then in verse 25, it says, Till then, Christ reigns. He's on the throne. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees He is reigning now. Jesus is on the throne. He is in control. Isn't that good news? I hear, I mentioned this last week. So many people are so fearful and worked up about the election. Well, let me tell you something. No matter who is elected, Jesus is on the throne. We could have the worst president in the United States. History. We could have the worst president ever. But Jesus is going to be on the throne. We've had a lot of bad presidents. We've had a adulterers we've had drunkards i mean there have been lots of horrible presidents and the whole time jesus was on the throne the only reason this nation exists is because jesus is on the throne and he's sustaining it don't put your hopes in politics i'm not saying it's wrong to vote or anything like that yes we we, we should vote whatever if you feel you want to vote but don't put your hope in political leaders. Don't put your hope in the government of the United States. Put your hope in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And pray for our government, because he says to in the Bible, pray for our nation. Pray to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings who's on the throne. It says Christ, in verse 25, Christ will conquer all his enemies. He will destroy death. Verse 26 says he will destroy death itself. That's the last thing. Someday there will be no more death. And then he says all things will be subject to Christ. Every demon, every ruler, every government, everything. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees Satan is not going to rule. Demons are going to be under, well, they already are, but they will be completely under the subjection of Jesus Christ. They have some leeway in the world right now. Demons can do things. Demons can tempt. Demons can afflict. There will be a day they will not be able to do anything at all because they will be completely under Jesus' feet. And then it says, Jesus will himself subject himself to the Father and God will be all in all. The whole universe, every molecule, every atom, every square inch will glorify God and bring him praise and honor and glory. I don't even know the full ramifications of what that means. God will be all in all, but all glory will go to God. All praise and honor. Everything will obey God. Everything will be in perfect order. That's what the resurrection guarantees. Not bad, huh? The resurrection guarantees an incredible future. It guarantees that our faith now is not in vain. Boy, when, when, 
when you go through trials, you can feel like, why am I believing? Is my faith in vain? Why, you know, this trial is going on and on and on. I just want to encourage you today, your faith is not in vain. The resurrection guarantees that. And thirdly, the resurrection gives us incentive to live for God. Because if there's no resurrection, why should we deny ourselves? Why should we not just give in to sin wholeheartedly? If there's no life after this, why not party? Go for all the pleasure we can get in this world. But because there will be a future resurrection... And God will reward us for living for Him. We should go all out for God. We should live for Him. We should seek to put sin to death. We should seek to serve God. We should seek to please Him in every way we can. Because someday there will be a resurrection. We will stand before God. So in verse 29 and following, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I'll talk about that in a second. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. So, first of all, he says, if... There's a resurrection. This gives us incentive to live for God. I'm just going to mention this for a second. He says, why be baptized for the dead? Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Well, in Mormon doctrine, according to the Mormons, which is a false religion, no one can enter the celestial heaven without being baptized, so they baptize for people in proxy, which it seems like that is what might, Paul might be saying. But I don't know. Honestly, people, commentators and scholars don't really know what was happening here. There's, there is no good evidence for being baptized for the dead anywhere else in the whole New Testament. This is the only place this mentions it. And so we can't build any kind of doctrine around this. Paul never told people to be baptized on behalf of the dead. He never preached it. There's not one single command in the New Testament, so I'm not sure, and it's okay because I, in, in my limited amount of reading on it, there's no scholars who have anything to say about it. There's no other mention in the whole Bible. What is clear is that believers are justified in God's sight by believing in Jesus, not by having someone baptized for them. We go to heaven because we believe in Jesus Christ and all he did on the cross is applied to us. 
So, we're going to just move on from that. But the resurrection gives us incentive to work hard, run hard after Jesus. Give your life all out to Jesus. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's he saying? First of all, Paul says, we are in danger every hour. Paul, Paul was regularly persecuted for preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, he, he, he says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about false apostles. He says, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And as if that's not enough, he says, apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Anybody in here ever go through that kind of stuff? Anybody been shipwrecked three times? Why was Paul willing to do this? Because he believed he would be rewarded for serving Jesus. So he was willing to suffer. He was willing to work. He was willing to take risks. He was willing to have people hate him. He was willing to go through all kinds of stuff. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I don't have time to look to, to, to read the Scripture, but in Acts chapter 19, when he was in Ephesus... There was a wealthy silversmith named Demetrius who stirred up the whole city of Ephesus against Paul. So Paul is talking, wild beasts were just people who hated him, stirred up the whole city of Ephesus in a riot. And he was saying, well, what do I gain from that? What do I gain? He says, I die every day. You know, Jesus... Jesus said, if you're going to follow me as a disciple, you're going to die every day. In Matthew 16, Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, 
and you should be, you should want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Now, back in Jesus' day, if you saw somebody carrying the cross, there was only one place they were going, to die. So Jesus said, being a disciple, you die to yourself. We die. We, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. It doesn't mean that we're all going to literally be crucified. It means that we have to die to our own desires. We have to die to sinful desires. We have to die to selfishness. We have to die to, to every kind of immorality, every temptation. We have, to die to, we have to die to selfishness and greed. We have to put those things to death every day for as long as our lives, or as long as we live. We're no longer slaves to sin, the Bible says. So we have to put it to death. We still have these desires, though. Sin's dominion over us is broken, but it is still with us in a sense. It is no longer our ruler, but it still can exert its desires, and we have to put those desires to death and not obey them. We must flee immorality. We must run from temptation. We must put anger to death. When we feel like cursing someone, we must bless them. When we want to be selfish, we must give our time and money and energy to God and others. And we do this by the power of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. He gives us all the grace we need to do this if we seek Him. And why do we do this? Because the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. So how did, how did Paul endure all that he do, did? How could Paul die every day? How do we put our sins to death? How do we take up our cross? It's by believing in the resurrection and that Jesus is going to come back and He is going to reward us for every prayer we uttered, every, every widow's might we put in the offering, every, every time we served another person in secret, every, every little act, every glass of water we gave to a disciple. It may be hard now, but God will repay us and reward us and bless us. And that is assured by the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, there's no incentive to do all this. Why would I want to take up my cross if when I die, I die? <laughs> why would I want to deny myself? That's why he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Sounds like a beer commercial. You only go around once in life, so let's grab for all the gusto you can get. You only go around once, Get all you can while you can. But the resurrection says, flee sin. Flee bad teachers. Flee immoral people. Don't hang out with immoral people. And that's why he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. See, the Corinthians were giving in to immorality. They were giving in to sin. They were giving in to all kinds of wicked living. And Paul says, you've got to wake up. 
It's like you're in a drunken stupor. Wake up. Jesus has risen from the dead. Wake up. He's coming back. Don't go on sinning. And don't hang out with people who are going to lead you into sin. Bad company ruins good morals. He says, do not be deceived. See, we, I, I've, I've talked to people at times and they says, you know what? I can hang out with these non-Christians who are doing this on a regular basis. I can hang out. It's not going to bother me. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't think you can regularly hang out with immoral people and you won't be affected. Now, that doesn't mean you go to work and there's immoral people at work. I'm talking about fellowshipping, hanging out. These are your buddies all the time. Doesn't mean we're not reaching out to non-Christians. Doesn't mean that. So Paul says, why? Because of the resurrection. Because of what's the future. Because Jesus is coming back. And one final scripture from Romans 13, which underlines this. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Again, there it is, wake up. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? Because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The second coming of Jesus is nearer now than when I first believed in the early 70s. The, 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 the second coming of Jesus is nearer now than when this was written in the first century. This dark age is nearly over. The day is almost here, the glorious day of heaven. So don't live for darkness. Live for light. Live for the day. Live for the day when we see Jesus face to face. Live for the day when you go to heaven and you hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're living for, isn't it? And the resurrection guarantees that. Let's, let's stand and let's pray. Let's thank Jesus that the resurrection validates our present faith, guarantees our future hope, and gives us incentive to live for God. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And I just pray that you would help all of us to run hard after you, to pursue you with all our heart. Help us, Jesus, to turn away from sin. Help us, Lord, strengthen our faith. Lord, those here this morning whose faith is, is, is at, a, at a low level for whatever reason, strengthen their faith. Lord Jesus, we just ask you to strengthen our, our hope for the future and, and give us grace to overcome sin and to live for your glory. 
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.